Madtown's 93.1 Jams Black History Month Community and Cultural Awareness. I'm sitting down today with Alnisa Allgood from two amazing businesses, Collaboration for Good and Nonprofit Tech. How are you, Alnisa? I'm doing well, <laughs> despite all of the cold weather. <laughs> yeah, I know the polar vortex of 2021, like it hit hard this year. <laughs> yeah. First, I want to start with Collaboration for Good. This is amazing. Your website has so much going on. You've been around in the Madison area for five years approximately with this project, and I'm hoping you can break it down for Madtown. Yeah, so basically Collaboration for Good works on economic equity issues in a variety of different ways. We really do it on two fronts, really. So one, we're changing how people who work in social good the social good sector, so nonprofits, public institutions, social entrepreneurs, and stuff like that. Think about pay um, for it. Because from my perspective, pay inequity, wage inequity, poverty is one of the consistent threads that just keeps feeding into racism, sexism, a lot of other like isms. And but it's also the things that de detract from health and, and wellness and all of that, that any one individual could be looking for seeking out in in their life. But it also I think makes the social sector a weaker sector, if you say like the social sector is huge and large, it brings in, I think it's the third most um, uh, gross domestic product and in income for the United States. But it's always treated like not even a second class cousin, you know, for that. And so that's on one end. And then on the other end, we're also helping people just bypass systems of that would normally repress them by creating their own businesses and taking charge of their own economic. <laughs> you guys are using technology to drive entrepreneurship and teach, you know, self-sustaining uh, mm -hmm. resources. And some of the things that you guys have going on right now, and, and just at a first glance at your website, like I was blown away. <laughs> Madison Nonprofit Day Conference, Social Good Accelerator, the Mad Tech Education Series, um, Nonprofit Lending Library, like helping people to continue educating. And I got two more, Nonprofit Day Draft and, and nonprofit radio roundtable. Like these are all amazing resources that I don't think enough people know about. I mean, they're great resources and we're still building some of them up. Definitely the Madison Nonprofit Day um, was one of our first. It's been around like the longest. Technically, it's been around longer than Collab for Good. <laughs> Mostly because I started it before I really decided what Collab for Good was going to be and made it like an actual structure um, for that. So it's been around, I think, 11 or 12 years now, whereas we started Collab for Good in, I think, 2016, 2017 <laughs> for that. And that was really just more of like, how can we build like a, a skills building conference that allows people in the social sector to net, um, network, but also introduces new ideas and new philosophy and not the, the same old, same old rhetoric around nonprofit accountability. Um, most of your workers should be volunteer or why would, well, the person is getting paid and do it because they're doing good. So why should they have just pay? <laughs> you know, basically systems that created instances in 
I feel wrong saying instances almost to a degree because it's more prevalent than that, but it basically created situations where the people were, who are helping out like the homeless or the hungry or raise or increasing people's job skills or employability are stuck in basically dead end jobs where they have to use food banks before the end of the month to get their own food, you know, and it's not like they're not doing good work. They're doing great work and they are moving people, I think, down like the the economic chain, like in putting them in better positions, but they're stuck in the position that they are because so many other people, including their board of directors, thinks that paying them more than $30,000 is like too much. <laughs> and, and in this day and age, it's hardly a livable wage. Right. It's not. I mean, like, especially here in Madison, I mean, like you can live off of like maybe $35,000 kind of well, if you're like single, very minimalistic and, you know, yeah, you don't have a ton of student much. loans. <laughs> mm-hmm. But change any of those variables, Madison really requires like an income of at least around $50,000, $55,000 for a single person to live what would be considered an adequate lifestyle yeah, yeah, and, and not necessarily even comfortable, but right. like you said, adequate right. and, and, and nobody's hiring with jobs that come at that rate. And like you said, a lot of nonprofits have the philosophy that they're, they're not going to pay. So to teach someone that you can start a nonprofit and you can pay yourself a livable wage because that's the, the time, the effort, like if you're going to work 60 hours to benefit the community and community over self, like there should be a compensation for that. Absolutely. Like there should be good compensation. And I argue it's, I think it's one of the very foundations that we need to change around the sector, but also people's philosophy about the sector. I think too many people hold on to the idea from like the 60s, 70s as the nonprofit sector, as a volunteer sector. And that was mostly true when most women were still stay at home wives looking for something to do, but their husbands were absolutely supporting them during those periods of time. And, but that philosophy is still embedded through the fabric of the nonprofit sector. I mean, there's tons of women executive directors or CEOs of various nonprofits who still aren't getting paid well in their role, role, but they're in a relationship and like, it's like, well, you know, whatever, my husband br- brings home over $200,000, you can pay me 35, but they're not thinking about, well, what happens to the next person that, that steps into that role? What if they're single? What if they're single and black and a mother? Can they afford to live off of $35,000? No, no. So it's not always just about you and what you can afford to do, but what's right and what's fair and what allows like your organization to go on in, I think, a sustainable manner for that. And to some degree, as I said, we're really just talking about adequate pay, I think, in existing nonprofits. What we're doing on the other side with the social good accelerator is we're talking to people really about what's a good pay rate for you that will allow you to do the work that you want to do, hire other people to help you with that work and still have a good life. So, you know, we're talking about base salaries of $75,000, $90,000, and up for for those people 
And, you know, and we argued to them, you know, because some people were like, well, I could put, I've been used to living off less. And it's like, it's about the next person in, but it's also about what happens when you need more, right? So it's one thing to transition from, I'm taking 50% of a $90,000 salary, (laughs) right? And if you need more than you just have to get the percentage changed, right? (laughs) It's a totally different thing to be like the pay for this role is $45,000 and you have to ask your board for pay raise, right? Because there's always going to be somebody who's like, well, fiscal responsibility, we're just not going to do it. We're not going to, you know, like, well, that seems like a a significant jump. Why are we trying to do this, right? (laughs) And stuff like that. So it's far better to set a, a livable salary. And then if you need to live off less of it, then you can be like, okay, I'm taking 50%, 35% of my salary rate, but nobody can argue against what your base salary is. <laughs> Especially if it's a fair base salary. And then at the same rate, you don't have to come into a feeling behind. You're on a level playing field and it changes your experience. Right. Exactly. It allows you to do more. I mean, I've always argued like in the nonprofit sector, there's this theme of accountability that has always argued that operating expenses expenses shouldn't be more than 10 to 15 percent of your budget. And I've always been the person who've argued I'd rather have operating expenses be 100% of our budget and have like three to five really good people that are paid well, that don't have to like go out and take multiple other jobs to make ends meet. And that can kind of go home at five o'clock, rest, have a good life, come back refreshed because those people will help me get almost any event activity or program I want off the ground without a single dollar of our own organizational money. You know, like, so if you have people in those positions that I think are well taken care of, they're not just more engaged in, but they're more creative and they have the time to really go out there and think about like, how can we get this program funded even if the funds aren't coming directly into the organization that's sponsoring the program. Nonprofit, you know, is the word, you know, it doesn't mean work for free. (laughs) You know, it means the company isn't out for the dollar. It's out for the good. But some of the biggest businesses out there today are nonprofits generating millions of dollars. So, I mean, and I think that's one of the things that people overlook frequently. There's such disdain, I think, for the nonprofit sector. There's less disdain, I think, for the social good sector. But there's such disdain for the nonprofit sector that people just seem to ignore that. Nonprofits are technically businesses. Not all of them are are operated like traditional businesses, but but basically they're C corporations, right? <laughs> they're yeah. just C corporations with a tax exempt status. Sometimes they're LLCs with a tax exempt status, but that's less frequent um, for that. And really it just means that they have a different bottom line, but they still have to have an economic bo- bottom line. They have to be economically viable. No nonprofit is wor- is like working deeply in the red for like four or five years, nobody would extend them a line of credit like that, just like any business, right? (laughs) You know, so 
you have to like make all of your bottom lines neat and they are businesses. And, you know, sometimes I'm at events here locally in Madison, I think in some ways does love its social good sector, right? Um, but then in other ways, they still have that casual disregard and um, criticism of the sector, which I don't even think sometimes they recognize is coming out like you know i can't say where i've been in tech beatings and people are just like well nonprofits are just always asking for money <laughs> and i'm like we're in a tech networking section section um event right here everybody here is almost asking for money right? I'm, like, I'm like i'm like i'm the only representative or i might be one of two representatives of nonprofits and we're not asking for any money from any of you guys but all of the conversation is like getting other people to invest in us or to sponsor this or that and stuff you know and it's just you know i think it's just something that's honed into people so much that they don't even realize that it's coming out and it's affecting how they think about the sector as a whole, but also how they treat it. Like the a lot of the people who become part of nonprofit boards of directors treat them almost like they don't understand finances and that like not only are they have fiduciary re responsibility, but they treat the agent that they're supposed to be helping like Britney Spears, right? <laughs> it's like just uh you know with such disdain and such callousness and all of this and it's like i know better i'm your papa <laughs> we can do better uh, in a in a technology driven society I, I think collaboration for good is something that is so important you're using technology to drive entrepreneurship and, and thrive the community and right now that's huge there's not enough companies doing that I thank you and salute you. Thank you. Yeah. And I have to say, like, part of that is it's where the future is going. But the other part of that is I'm just a tech geek at heart, <laughs> uh, you know, as well. So no, there's um, nothing wrong with that. And, and I mean, so if anybody in Madison and the surrounding areas wanted to get in touch with collaboration for good, how can the public find you guys? Basically, our website, which is collab for good using the number four, as opposed to spelling it out, .org. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. They can search on my name or Collaboration for Good for, for those as well. Or they can just call us 608-241-3616. You had mentioned that you had started Collaboration for Good through another business that you have called nonprofit tech. They seem to work really synergistically together. Yeah, so nonprofit tech is basically a technology consultancy. We basically use earned income. We provide a variety of different tech services from digital marketing, social media posting, database design, website development. We're moving further away from this, but currently we still have a few clients in the arena of network and system administration and user support and in training, um, which is like mostly kind of remote work in, we work with nonprofits all over the country and also out of the country. So we have some nonprofits in Canada, in Singapore, in South Korea, in Germany that we occasionally work with as well um, for that. And it's really, you know, like, and people are just kind of like, well, what is it that you guys specialize in? And we're really a 
a generalist technology company. There are things that we don't do, like we don't do telephony. The equipment is way too expensive and it's time consuming and you need people to roll out to various places and things like that. Otherwise, we're, we're learning new things and build, um, taking on new skills all the time. I would say if we specialize any, in anything, it's kind of process automation, because okay. I think that's just one of those, everybody's busier these days. And if you can get rid of some of the repetitive tasks that just take up large blocks of time that, you know, and you can um, automate them or streamline them that will allow you to get through your day faster, but also to focus more time on things that require thought or collaboration or creativity and stuff. And that's, I think, where the important stuff is. Your technology shouldn't hinder you. And a lot of nonprofits have technology that's a, more of a hindrance than a benefit. Right? <laughs> And educating them on what would be the way to go is definitely mm -hmm. something that many nonprofits and regular businesses can benefit from. So, uh, Alnisa, I really appreciate you teaching us about collaboration for good and nonprofit tech. You're two amazing businesses. 93.1 Jams, Black History Month, Community and Cultural Awareness. The second part of this conversation, we're going to talk about the hidden history of Black women paving the way here in America. There's so much that I'm still learning about the history of Black America, mostly like about women in the history of Black America as well. I mean, I think obviously as a Black woman, I probably know a little bit more about Black history than like just say your average white person <laughs> on the on the street. But there's still just things that surprise me. Like I think at the end of last week, I posted about Polly Murray. Have you ever heard of her? I have not heard of her. <laughs> so basically, she was a law student at the time where like the conversations about um how could you successfully argue against separate but equal in education and all these theories? And she basically came up in a class with the instructor and all the other male like people in the class mocking her came up with a strategy that eventually became the strategy that was used to end Jim Crow laws. Oh. So her strategy was basically used by Thurgood Marshall in like their team when they were arguing <laughs> against that. But it was like mocked and laughed at like when she was in class and she came up with it. But you know, nevertheless, she persisted. She wrote it up as like a paper. I think for her class. And that's why I think I forget her instructor name was able to go back to that and pull it in and show it to Thurgood, Mar Thurgood Marshall and their team. And like they kind of adopted that strategy for pushing forward. Because at before that time, most people were still arguing that separate could be equal. Like, so it was really just more about, well, how can we make the separation a little bit better <laughs> for those <laughs> poor people? <laughs> and it's she basically, yeah, like, and she basically put that argument on the head, on its head, like separate is never equal. <laughs> no, it's, it's really the opposite of equal. And at a time, not only a, a person of color, but a woman of color to go into law. And, you know, like you said, like she wasn't taken seriously, mocked, probably also held at a disadvantage in the learning process. That's a, a major, major accomplishment. Yeah. 
So she's somebody like I think the New Yorker did a piece on her. I had never heard of her before that New Yorker piece as well. So that's something still like rapid learning of something even today. But then like the um, I would say one piece of history that I'm really interested in and I'm starting to explore right now. Well, it's actually two pieces of history. One is, you know, Rebecca Hall just released a movie in like the um, cinema circuit called Passing with um, Tessa Thompson and um, Ruth Nega, I believe, as its lead. And it's just, for me, ironic because I've heard of her mother. And I think just a few days before I was hearing about the the announcements, I was actually listening to a song from Carmen being sung by her mother, who was Maria Ewing, I believe. She was fairly famous opera singer, um, very light skin, and she passed. Even as she, I think, left the public spotlight and she was married and, and things like that, she was still using passing terminology. So like to the point that Rebecca thought her mom was Black, but she had no confirmation <laughs> that her mom was a Black woman, right? Because like, you know, everybody else, like she existed in this white world and everybody else just had reasons to normalize, like, oh, she's light skin or she's European or <laughs> or things like that. Normalizing at that point in time meant a better life. Exactly. It, it meant a safe life or safer life unless you were caught you know, and like, and people who did it, like, they still continue to do it. Like, it's it then because it just becomes like something that's always there that like they're used to. It. It's like what before you come out, like if you if you ever came out, like if you would if you were gonna come out as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or any type of thing. There's all these like little switch terms that you hear, like you know that other like if you're already lesbian and gay, you might recognize them. Like you'll hear that like all of a sudden like the person's talking about somebody who's making them happy and there's absolutely no gender involved whatsoever it's like is it a tree and it's like no it's not a tree, <laughs> not a tree. they've got feelings in a heart <laughs> you know beautiful thing but, though in, in 2021 like we we're all we need to be to see love without having to have a, a gender assigned like i don't see a problem with that right yeah i mean i think you don't need to actually have a gender assigned but i think i was more getting to just like the language like there's this language of how do you pass that isn't just about race though it's definitely there in racial communities but it can also be there in queer communities or even like when women are making themselves appear as if they're men like not I'm not actually talking about transitioning and stuff like that but like in history where women have been in unsafe places and when I say history this is a super far off like technically speaking if you're a woman a woman wanting to work you know mines or anything that's like a dangerous predominantly male community you don't re- necessarily want to present yourself as a woman <laughs> to those communities because it becomes incredibly dangerous for you and so there's i think this terminology round passing that kind of crosses a lot of different like it's not just about race it, it exists in other 
communities as well. And so it's just interesting to hear about this movie. We don't have access to the movie, but I purchased the book that was written, I think, back in 1929. Oh, wow. Um, for it. It's, and the book is really small. Actually, it was funny because I was just on Facebook complaining, like, you know, like, this is the book. I'm like, it's not that much bigger than my coffee cup, yeah. which is really my teacup. You size, know, it doesn't matter. It's the impact. Right, exactly. And so that was by like Nella Larson. And like, that's something that I'm exploring right now, because I think it's something that's still, well, one, it's still slightly in use. And a lot of times I I see it used more now in Hispanic communities or Latino communities. And I'm not saying just those communities, because definitely I think light skinned blacks still use it and stuff. But, you know, like when you hear somebody talking about like, you know, I have a Spanish history or I'm a Spaniard instead of like, you know, it's like my family's from Mexico or, you know, or, or something like that um, for it, you know, and it's because they can pass and they know that they're treated better if they present as as white, as opposed to as black or Latino and things like that, you know, and I think it's, it's an interesting shift because it still causes problems. And for me, I don't, I'm not, I can be a little bit frustrated when people do it, but I'm not opposed when people do it because there's real world issues with being black in America or Latino in America or even native in America or all any, all of these different races. It's like, yeah, your chances of getting killed or beaten up or discriminated against are so much higher. And in some ways, that's why I even like the fact that when I created nonprofit tech, While there was some on-site stuff, it could be a virtual business because my speaking tone, people are always asking me, where are you from, right? And I'm like, I'm from Ohio, but I have a speech defect. And so I had a speech therapist who was British, right? And so my intonation kind of goes in and out on various words and people think that I'm not from the US. So vocally, I present as white. And I can say, honestly, that that's gotten me a ton of jobs that I probably wouldn't have gotten if my vocal tone presented as Black. Wow. You know? (laughs) That's really crazy. And I could kind of hear the British British undertone in in the accent, too, at times. So that's kind of interesting to learn. (laughs) Yeah, it's just there. (laughs) Anissa, I I thank you so much for sitting down with me today and spending a few minutes about your business as well as Black history and culture. One more time, can you drop your website and contact information for Collaboration for Good? So Collaboration for Good, our website is collab for the number four good.org. So collab for good.org. Our telephone number is 608 241 3616. And you can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn looking for collaboration for good or my name, Alnisa Allgood. <laughs> I salute you and, and applaud you on your efforts. And thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, and this is, this is an interesting project. Um, congratulations for doing it. Uh, I think it's going to be a value to the community. <laughs>